Hey, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor, and uh, thanks for joining us as we continue our sermon series through the parables. Um, this morning, we're looking at a, uh, a rich fool. I'm sure you have heard of um, the saying, a fool and his money are soon parted, right? American colloquialism, we, we all get what it means, right? It's, it's so well known that, in fact, it has spawned its own sub-genre of, of uh, colloquialisms right at the poker table. A, uh, a fool and his money are my best friends. Um, Will Rogers once said that a fool and his money are soon elected. Um, so a fool and his money do a lot of things, and in the end, they are soon parted, right? The implication is this, that, that, that fools don't know how to handle money. They, they, they're foolish. They spend it when they shouldn't spend it. Uh, maybe they don't invest it when they should invest it. They miss opportunities. Um, they, they get taken advantage of uh, fools are poor, and it is their fault. And um, if you want to be wise, the implication is you need to keep and keep your money and get more, right? A wise man keeps his money and, and grows in his wealth. Um, but here's the thing. I, I think we miss something critical with this saying, um, and it's honestly in a very unexpected place. It's that little word soon. How do we determine what soon is? A fool and his money are, are soon Parted, right? How do we define soon, right? Is that today? Is that tomorrow? Is that next week? Is that next year? Is that at the ripe old age of, of 90? I mean, what is, what is that, right? A toddler thinks in terms of moments, right? A toddler, everything is present tense to a toddler, right? There is no, there is no future. It is either immediate gratification or no gratification. It is either immediate need or no need. It is, it is a toddler lives in the present, when you, when you get into your teens, um, you start thinking a little bit further. But even then, man, it's so hard to think very far ahead. When you're 12 years old, thinking about turning 13, it just feels like an eternity, right? So long, right? And, and then when you get older, um, you start planning and thinking in terms not of weeks or months, but in terms of years, right? When you're in your, your kind of adult years, when you're doing your adulting thing through your 20 and early 30s, uh, you start thinking in terms of, 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 of man, a year is, is a, well, I'm, I'm in, 50 now, and, and honestly, I think in terms of decades, right? I mean, it's, it's when I'm thinking about my life, and I'm thinking about my plans, and I'm thinking about what I'm going to do, uh, my, my, my vision has broadened, right? The older we get, the broader our vision gets, right? So what is God's vision like? What is soon to God? An eternal being who thinks in epochs, right? In, in, in the turning of planets, um, the creation of solar systems, See, how you define soon depends on how you experience time. And how you experience time has a lot to do with um, your experience of life. Today, Jesus makes a very clear point that a fool and his money are soon parted. But his point is this, that a fool and his money are soon parted every single time, whether it's in a day or in a lifetime. So let's unpack this. The context of our parable today, um, it, it begins with an event, right? Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he is teaching his disciples. And, and so you can picture Jesus as the rabbi standing and his disciples possibly sitting on the ground around him, which would have been a customary scene. But around that is just this huge thronging crowd, people that are just pushing in in order to hear him teach. He is at this point of popularity in his ministry where people are gravitating toward him. They want to be near him. They want to hear what he has to say um, because he's making a tremendous amount of buzz. And, and in the middle of his teaching his disciples, a man from the crowd yells out, 
right? He, he interjects into the middle of the teaching in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me, right? So he brings his need to Jesus. He, he's obviously having a difficulty with his brother. And according to Levitical law, uh, when a father would die, the, the estate would be entrusted to the oldest son. The oldest son would then divide it among um, the, other, the other siblings, and um, the oldest son would get the lion's share and, and would have the, the driving and primary control over it. So, so who knows what's happening here? We're not told. It could be that the oldest son uh, received the estate and is, in fact, rece- refusing to share any of it with the younger son, which would be an issue of... of legitimate justice. It could also be that the younger son wants to receive full ownership of his share of the estate so that he can separate it and create his own. That, that he wants to, in fact, go independent, and the older brother is saying, no, you, you, you get your share, but you don't get full control. You don't get to divide the estate and, and, and break up the company and, and all the rest of that. Either way, what's happening is, is he's showing up to Jesus, and he's saying, um, Jesus, I want you to use, my, use your authority on my behalf. I, I am facing what I perceive to be an injustice, and I think you can intervene on my behalf. Now, notice that he shows up with a tremendous amount of urgency, right? He doesn't, he doesn't yell out a question. He actually yells out a command. It is in the imperative voice. He, Teacher, tell my brother, that's a command, to divide the inheritance with me, right? He's showing up with urgency. He's showing up with expectancy. Um, and he's showing up saying, I know you have the authority to do this. Now, Jesus was a rabbi. What authority would he have to do that, right? He's, he's not a small courts, claims court, right? He, he's not a judge, right? Um, but in that culture, we've talked about this word tonish in previous sermons, a, a Kyrgyz word that means a, an economy of respect. Um, in, in Eastern cultures, uh, that he would, he would have been, as a rabbi, he would have been high in tonish, high in the economy of respect. So he would have been very, very weighty. So if he had actually said something in favor of the younger brother, if he had actually used his words to criticize the older brother or to support the younger brother, the younger brother could have used that to leverage the older brother. It would have been very, very weighty. It would have had tremendous authority. And so he was asking Jesus to leverage that authority, to exercise it on his behalf, to bring him the justice that he believed he deserved. Jesus' response is, um, is less than encouraging, right? Take a look at verse 14. But he said to him, man, who made me judge or arbiter over you? Um, so man, I don't know if you know this, but it's not the most enduring term, right? Jesus isn't saying, hey, bro, I'm so sorry. He's like, man, that's a way of creating separation. He's like human, right? Fellow human, right? There's absolutely no relational tie there. There is no intimacy. There is no sense of, of being on the inside. It's like, it's like, hey, human, man, who made me judge over you? Kind of harsh. I love it. Um, I've got a friend, and part of the reason I love her is because she is just, she's just real, like all the time. And, um, Big personality, tremendous gifts, uh, married to a husband of, of big personality, tremendous gifts. And one time they were together and, and a networker approached the guy and, um, and basically was, was, you know, 
basically said, hey, God's got a wonderful plan for your life, and I'd like to tell you what it is. You know, one of those deals where, where I'd like to invite you in because, because I've got this wonderful plan for your life. And so he's envisioning him and, 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 and kind of laying out this plan of how great this is and inviting him to be part of it and, and talking about how good it will be for him. And, and in the middle of it, of course, he does the, the sly and wise thing to also include her. You know, he looks over at her, and he's like, and your gift set, man, you could do this and you can do this. And, and she looked at him and said, you don't know me. That kind of put an end to the conversation. Right in that moment, he's like, that, that creates separation, doesn't it? What that's basically saying is you're, you're assuming an intimacy that doesn't exist. You're, you're assuming an, an invitation to draw near that I haven't given you. You are assuming you have influence with me you don't have, right? You haven't done the relational work for me to pay that relational rent, I'm not paying it, right? Jesus looks at the man and says, man, who made me arbiter over you? You don't know me. You don't know me. And what he's implying is, in fact, you don't want to know me. You're not here to know me. You're not here to follow me. You're not here to honor me. You're not, you're not here to draw near to me. You're here to use me. You're here because you think I have an authority you don't have that can be leveraged on your behalf, and you just want to use my authority for your gain. See, Jesus isn't making any kind of assumption about whether his claim is just or unjust. That has nothing to do with it. It's the heart motivation behind it, is that this man is showing up and he sees Jesus as a means to an end. You have something I need that will help me get what I want. So I will come near to you in order to, to pull the right levers, say the right things, so that you will use your authority for, for my good. And Jesus is like, you need to step back, man. I'm not, I'm not here to do that. I am not your arbiter. And then Jesus, right after this, looks back at his disciples and uses this as a teaching moment, which is very, very lovely, right? Verse 15, he looks back at the disciples and he says, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. This is the key verse in this passage. This is the hinge on which the two parts uh, turn, right? You got the, the story of the man coming up and interrupting Jesus, and then you have a parable at the end. And, and this is the key verse that hinges those, those two things together and illustrates the, the central point, right? And essentially what he's saying is this, be on guard against greed. Right? Take care, be on guard against all covetousness. Covetousness is, is greed. Right? It's a strong desire for, for your own personal gain, things, um, right? greed. Um, because, he says, you're going to be tempted to think that true, full, abundant life comes from having more. Be really, really, really careful. Take care and guard your heart against greed because it will lie to you. It will trick you into thinking that the abundance of life, the fullness of life, the blessing of life comes from having more. And then he moves into a parable to illustrate his point. Take a look at verses 16 through 21. Starting in verse 16, and he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I will build larger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. Okay, pause there for a second. Um, this is a pretty unremarkable story. 
It's a rich dude who knows how to manage his wealth, right? It's a guy who, who we don't know how long he's been laboring, how much he's been working, but he clearly ha- has a dream, right? He, he, has, he has dreamed of greater fruitfulness and productivity in his company, in his business, in his, in his estate, and, and it is coming to fruition. He has sown the seed, literally, and it is coming back incredibly fruitful. And so now he has what one of those things that we call a good problem, which is usually what, what people outside call it when they're a little bit jealous that they don't have that problem. But when you're inside, it's just a problem, right? It's like, I don't have an, I don't, I, I can't store the grain, right? It's being so productive, so fruitful. I, I don't have the capacity uh, to, to, to manage what's being produced. So what will I do? I'm going to take some of my resources. I'm going to spend money now so that I can make more money later. I'm going to tear down these barns. I'm going to build bigger ones. And in these bigger barns, I will have a greater capacity to store this greater productivity. All right, at this point, is there anything wrong with that? Absolutely not. That's smart business. The guy very simply is reaping what he has sown by being a good businessman, by investing his, his money and, and his crops wisely. And, 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 and as he has grown in, in um, the benefit and, and in the, the, the fruit of that labor, it has gotten to a point where, where he has finally, like, he's going to have to tear down his barns and build bigger ones for greater capacity, for greater productivity. So, so he's expanding the business, right? He's at that stage where it's, it's so fruitful He's expanding the business. Is there anything wrong with that? No, not at all. Not at all. It's a good practical solution to a good problem, right? You're probably going to create more jobs. You're going you're to increase uh, the, the wealth of your estate. You're, you're going to, um, you know, produce opportunity. I mean, that's good business, right? What's wrong with this? Well, what's wrong with it comes in the ver- next verse, right? In, in verse 19. And not only will I build these, these greater barns uh, to, to store my, my greater produce, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. See, the problem wasn't the fact that he was a good businessman. The problem was the fact that he, he, he laid his hope in his prosperity. In other words, he, he looked to the abundance of his wealth to deliver him into the fullness of life. Because he now got to tear down the barns and build these bigger barns, he, he looks at this and, and, and thinks, man, um, now, now, I get to relax. Now, I get to enjoy the fruitfulness of my labors. People are going to see me tearing down my barns and building newer ones, and, and my name will be established in this community. I will be respected. I will be followed. People will ask me for coaching and for leadership advice. Now, now I can relax. Now I will have enough that, that I, can, I can 
man, I can just enjoy life. I'll be able to spend money on vacations. I will be able to eat, drink, and be merry. And people will want to do it with me because, because they will admire me and love me because of my wealth. Now I will be secure because I will have, a, I will have enough to protect myself against the, the, the vagaries of the market, the ups and downs and the threats and the rest of it. Now I will be significant. Now I will be secure. Now I will be able to rest. All right, pause for a second, because we know this doesn't go well for him, right? We all, we all have, we've already read the parable, we kind of know where it's going, and we're all like, yeah, he's just a big dummy, right? But before we, we write him off as a big dummy, I want, I want all of us to recognize we're all big dummies with him, okay? Because, because he, he embodies us. Let me ask you something. If he doesn't die tonight, which of course Jesus said he would, but, but let's say he doesn't die tonight, and he gets his bigger barns, do you think he's finally going to be able to relax? Do you think those bigger barns are actually going to give him what he hoped he would get? That now, finally, he has arrived at the plateau on the top of the mountain, and he can stop striving and yearning and and being restless and being driven and unhappy. Now he will be able to relax. Now he will be secure. Now he will be significant. Now he will be able to rest in his pleasures. Do you think? Do you think? Have you ever looked at life and thought, man, if I could just get there, if I could just get that promotion, if I could just get that platform, if I could just get that endorsement, if I could just, if I could just get that raise, if I could just get that bigger house, if I could just get that nicer car, if I could just get have you ever been there where you you actually thought, if I could just get that, then I will be able to say to my soul, soul, relax. Eat, drink, be merry because you finally have arrived. You ever been there? I'm guessing you have. And this is what happens because it's the cycle of the human heart. It is how greed continually deceives us and delivers us into death. You look at what you have, and you think, hmm, it's not enough. What do I need? A little more. I need a little more money. I need a little more a little more significance, a little more platform. I, I need a little more security. I need a little more pleasure. I need, I need a little more. I need, I need a little more, Right? This man set his hopes on a prosperous business. He placed his his hope in the dreams of bursting barns, and now he has finally arrived. He is on the edge of receiving what he had been looking forward to for so many years. And the problem is this. I mean, if you're older than a child, you've lived this cycle before. You get what you wanted to get but it doesn't give you what you hoped it would give. You, you, you make it to the plateau. You get the bursting barns. You get the raise. You get the promotion. You get the platform. You, you get the 401k. You, you get the insurance. You get the car. You get the house. You, you get it. 
And then pretty soon, what you had plus a little more doesn't equal relax, be merry, let's just find the fruitfulness of life. What you have plus a little more just becomes what you have. And so once again, you're not at the peak of the mountain. You're not on the summit of the hill. You're left looking up. Once again, right? You're like a kid. You know those little kids? Hey, if you buy me this, I'll never ask you for anything again. And we smile at that because of the the naivety. They actually believe it, right? We're jaded. We've been around enough that we know. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard, right? You're going to ask me for it. I'm going to give it to you. Within five seconds, you're going to be asking for something else because what you have plus a little more just becomes what you have, right? The, The irony, though, is while we laugh at children for doing that, that's the cycle that drives our lives. We do that over and over and over and over again, right? We look at what we have with longing because it's obviously not feeding our appetites. It's not scratching the itch. It is not satisfying our desires. We look at what we have with longing, and as a result, we think, if I could just add a little more, then I'll be where I want to be. I'll have what I want to have. I'll experience what I need to experience. And then when you get it, there is a profound cathartic release. In other words, it feels good, right? Every, every, everybody in the Apple cult knows this, right? You look at your phone and you're like, this is the most glorious thing ever created by mankind. And then they come out with the next one and you're like, mine has a button. Yours, you just pick it up and look at it. I have to push a button. I need one that I can just look at. It's $1,000? Oh, I guess it's worth it. So you buy it, and it feels so good to finally slide your card across the table. And then you get it, and you pull the cellophane off, and it feels so good. And you open the box, and you're like, the packaging itself is art. And inside is this glorious phone that already has enough charge that it says hello to you. And you pick it up and you touch it and you're like, oh, it's so thin. It feels so good in my hands. Too bad I have to ruin it with all the protection because it's so fragile. But, but for a couple seconds, I can enjoy its naked beauty. And you hold it and you look at it and you have such joy. And then you put it in its case. And then a week goes by. And you look at it and you're like, oh, hey, look, I can just look at it. And then a month goes by. And it just becomes what you have. And that packaging that was was such art when you opened it is now cluttering your desk. And you're like, do I throw this away? Do I save it? What do I do? Oh, there's headphones back, right? What do you... What you have, plus a little more, becomes what you have. You look at what you have with longing, you get a cathartic release by getting something, and you mistake that temporary pleasure for lasting and genuine satisfaction. But what you have, plus what you get, just becomes what you have, and pretty soon you're looking at it with the same longing because that appetite can't be fed. 
with things. You know, I heard a definition of insanity one time that said that insanity is doing what you've always done, thinking that you won't keep getting what you always got. I think we're insane. Because we do this over and over and over and over and over again. This is the default mode of the human heart. Greed. And it's because we're separated from God by sin, right? God is the source of life. And because we're separated from God, we have to look to the things that God made instead of God himself to try to meet the deep desires that can only be satisfied in God. And we do this even as followers of Christ. That cathartic release becomes so addictive, right? I, I, I have had the, the weighty and, and I would say very, very sorrowful privilege of stepping into homes of people that were literally choking under the weight of their stuff, people that had become homebound because of their illness and isolated from community and, and had, had become stagnant in their relationship with God and had become addicted to the shopping network. And they literally were choking under the weight of unopened packages because they were addicted to the cathartic release they received when they simply bought something. It was an imitation experience of life and it was all they could get. We're all like that. Listen, this man wasn't a fool just because he was going to die that night. He was a fool because he forgot he was going to die. He wasn't just a fool because he was going to die that night. He was a fool because he kept repeating the same cycle over and over and over again. And just because he is at that moment of cathartic release, he is, he is just about to get the barns he's been looking forward to. He's finally going to get the respect. He's finally going to have the income. He's finally going to have the platform. He's, finally, he's right there and he thinks, man, this is going to be the... And in a great twist of irony, he dies... Just as he thinks he's going to summit the mountain, we know the reality had he continued living. That wouldn't have been the summit. He would have received a cathartic release of joy in reaching it, and then later he would have realized it was just a plateau. That it didn't meet his deepest needs. It didn't satisfy his deeper desires. It didn't do for him what he craved for it to do. He was a fool. Because he was always going to die, and yet he denied that reality. He set his heart on climbing the wrong hill. He set his heart on playing the wrong game. And, and Jesus is saying, man, even if you win this game, you lose. <laughs> it's not real. You keep chasing the fullness of life, joy, freedom, significance, and security in the things I've created instead of me, the creator. You keep looking to your money and experiences and reputation and houses and cars and trips and, and, and all of these things, but the things that God created can never do for your soul, what the creator of your soul can do. Fool, are you rich in this world, but poor toward God? Are you a pauper pretending to be a prince? bankrupt in your earthly possessions and materialism? Are you in the cul-de-sac of despair where the things you've chased haven't given you what you thought they would give 
And so you've just redoubled down to chase more. Are you pursuing pleasures at this point because you think they will give you genuine joy or because you think they will simply numb you to the absence of joy? Fool. Do you not see that you are not rich toward God? That's true riches, right? At the very end, he says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So what does it mean to be rich toward God? What is that? That's an interesting phrase, but we're tempted to fill it in with, with all kinds of stuff, right? Maybe works toward God, religious behavior, moral improvement, right? We could fill that gap with all kinds of religious things that ultimately make us look good to religious people, but none of that makes you rich toward God. That's all the result of being rich toward God. What does it mean to be rich toward God? Colossians 1.27, I'll put this verse on the screen behind me. God chose to make known how great are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. All right, it's worded in a challenging way, but let me unpack this. A mystery. When the Bible talks about a mystery, it's not talking about something that's hard to understand, like it's a riddle. He, he, the Bible's talking about something that's impossible to understand if God doesn't reveal it. A biblical mystery isn't something God's asking you to try to figure out. A biblical mystery is something you can't figure out unless God shows you. So there was a mystery here that God chose to reveal, right? God chose to make known how great are the riches of the glory. So so in other words, he broke into our insane cycle of greed. He broke into our insane addiction to getting and spending for the cathartic release and temporary pleasure as a substitute for genuine joy and freedom. He broke into that and revealed something to us that was the the genuine expression of the riches of His glory. And what is it? Christ in you. The hope of glory. That's true riches. That's genuine wealth. That's real significance. That's the key to joy. That is the place of genuine security. Christ in you. The hope of glory. That's the true treasure. Now, of course, we know the background of this, that that in order to be Christ in you, he had to be Christ for you. Right? Jesus came and lived the life we should have lived and died the death we deserved to die. He was our substitute in judgment so that we become his partner in blessing so that when he was raised from the dead, we could be invited into that resurrection. We could be invited into his righteousness. We could have his future instead of ours. We can have his record instead of ours. So he cleanses our past and he makes way our future. When we believe in Christ, we are completely cleansed and covered. We are not who we were. We are who he has declared us to be. When we believe in Christ, everything we've done wrong has been paid for, cleansed, and washed away. And everything that he's done right covers us as a garment. In fact, more than just covers us as a garment, now indwells us as a power. Christ didn't just work for us. He worked for us that he might be Christ in us. When we believe in Christ, he indwells us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And what ends up happening is that he loves us too much to, he loves us exactly as we are, but he loves us too much to leave us where we are. 
He will change us. He will set us free. Because here's the thing, freedom, y'all, freedom isn't getting to do whatever you want, right? If that were the case, a drug addict would be the freest person on the face of the earth if he had an unending supply of drugs, right? Freedom isn't getting to do what you want. Freedom is wanting to do what is good. Freedom is craving true life instead of slavery. Christ in you. He's not not showing up in you to try to get you to rearrange the furniture of your heart and become more religious and more moral. That's not the primary purpose. The primary purpose is to actually transform the desires of your heart that you will desire what is good. And in desiring to be good, you will become good. You will change, but not because you're fixing yourself for God, but because you're responding to the love of God. Christ in you. The hope of glory. Listen, you're loved that much. That God would not only send His Son to work for you, but then would give His Son to indwell in you. He is your constant companion. And you are His follower of Christ. He purchased you with the blood of His Son. And having purchased you with the blood of His Son, how will He not with His Son give you all things? Ephesians 1 tells us, follower of Christ, that you are currently, right now, seated in the heavenlies in Christ. In other words, when God sees you, He doesn't see you and think, man, I hope you fix yourself. I hope you do better. I'm sitting back here waiting for for you to prove yourself. He looks at you and He sees the record of His Son. You are right now with all of your brokenness, with all of your weakness, with all of your sin, seated in the heavenly with Christ because you are covered in His righteousness. He's not waiting for you to prove yourself that you might earn some blessing from Him. He has given you every blessing in Christ that is already yours. Now, while you've been given every blessing in Christ, you are not experiencing every blessing you've been given. You know why? Because your heart is still desperately clinging to the lies of greed. And we resist the gifts of grace. We fight against the blessing of true life. We try to use Jesus as a means to an end. We ask Him to bless our plans for our lives. We ask Him to to leverage His authority and His power to get us what we think we need in order to be free or significant or full of pleasure. We show up to God and say, give me what I think I need. Now here's the thing. Jesus doesn't rebuff us as followers of Christ. He doesn't look at you and say, man, step back. I don't know you. He instead says, draw near and be loved. Because it's in being loved we learn to trust, and it's learning to trust that frees us to stop trying to use God but actually follow God. To actually respond to the love of God and start treasuring God instead of the gifts that God gives. Christ in you, the hope of glory. He won you. He will change you. He has already claimed you. You are His. You have true riches. The fool, Jesus tells us, sets his heart on a fool's treasure. The world and its empty promises. Take a look back up at verse 15. 
In verse 15, that key verse, he warns his disciples and says, take care. Take care. Interesting phrase, take care. Be careful. Be alert. Be awake. Because greed, the lies of greed come in with a deceptive fog. And they cause you to to see things that aren't really there. To lust after things that won't really give you what they hope they will give you. You will start devaluing the true treasure and start overvaluing the lesser treasures. You, you will start looking to things to give you what only God can give you. Take, take care, follower of Christ. Be really, really careful with your heart and with your mind. Be alert. Stay awake. Take care and guard, right? Verse 15. Guard against all greed, all covetousness. Guard. The Greek word for guard here is a very active word, not passive, right? Don't, don't think about a guard leaning against a wall dozing in the sun, right? This means actually creating battlements. Guard your heart by actively working to rebuff the attack you know is here. Build the walls of protection. Establish uh, truths that will protect you from the lies. Guard your heart. Be careful. Be careful. And actively, actively fight against the battle that is raging. Don't just passively be carried along by it. Take steps to protect yourself against this attack because it is already here. So how do we do this? How do we guard our hearts against this kind of deceptive materialism? There, there are a lot of applications that I could take here. Let me just give you three quick ones first. Uh, we need to guard ourselves from setting uh, our hearts on getting more of God's gifts instead of experiencing more of his love. We need to guard our hearts from... from from valuing God's gifts more than we value God's love. God gives great gifts, <laughs> doesn't he? God is the one who gave us our capacities, our intelligence, our creativity. God is the one who gave us relationships. God is the one who gave us a drive and an ability to be productive. He is the one who gave us the desire to build, achieve, and grow. He, God has given us great gifts. Guard your heart from valuing the gifts more than the love of the God who gave them. Consumerism says, I am happy when I get and when I grow. What I have plus a little bit more will lead me to happiness. And of course, that's the greed cycle because what I have plus a little more just becomes what I have. Life doesn't come from having more. Life comes from loving more. We know this. You can be the richest person on the face of the earth, but if you have no one to share it with, you're in a mausoleum of your own greed. Joy comes from love, not from stuff. Joy comes from sharing, right? You can, you can have the most incredible experience on the face of the earth, but if you don't have somebody there that you genuinely love to share it with, it becomes a distraction. 
It's the love that makes the event significant. It is the love that makes the experience genuinely transformative. It is the love that makes, it makes the gift worth having. We need to remind ourselves that the first and primary love we must feed on is the love of God. That we are unconditionally, unreservedly loved by a God who paid a price to redeem us and restore us. A God who loves us more than we will ever understand and paid a price we will never be able to esteem that we might be adopted into his family. We are loved, right now loved, ridiculously loved by God. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. And there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. He has already solved your greatest problem and paid your greatest debt and given you your greatest blessing. And he is now in the progress of changing you so that you can experience what he's already given you. He will do it because he loves you. We know we're in danger when we can think about the love of God and not be humbled by it. We know we're in danger when we think about the love of God and, and have our pride stay intact. We've started looking to the things God has created to do for us what only God can do, consumerism. So I need to mention the, the, this new thing too. <laughs> Ironically, we as a society have become so bloated in our consumerism that, that I, can, I need to talk about minimalism too. Uh, minimalism is, is reverse consumerism. Um, it has become the new consumeristic religion. Um, there's nothing wrong with minimalism, right? There's nothing wrong with getting rid of stuff. In fact, um, it, it can be kind of fun, right? There's nothing wrong with getting stuff. It can be fun to buy something. It, it is awesome to, you know, when God gives you the ability, there's nothing wrong with owning things, and there's nothing wrong with getting rid of things. The problem is, culturally, we're starting to embrace minimalism as a reverse consumerism. It's become the philosophy. If I can just get rid of this stuff, then I get the cathartic release. Instead of buying things, I get rid of things, right? And I reduce it. I'm like, I have so much more room. I can see the floor in my closet. I, I can actually choose between a reasonable amount of pants. This is, this is good, right? And then you're like, yeah, but it wasn't good enough. I need to get rid of more and more and more and more. And, and pretty soon it's not just getting rid of stuff. It's, I got to get rid of stuff so I stop spending money over here so I can start spending on experiences. Because obviously getting rid of stuff, while it felt good, it didn't meet my deepest needs. So now I need to spend that money on these experiences. And pretty soon it's, it's just a never-ending card game in which you are changing the rules slightly but playing the same game. Minimalism can become the new materialistic philosophy of fulfillment. Listen, life doesn't come from having much and it doesn't come from having little. It comes from being loved. And experiencing that love from God and then moving in that love toward others. Being rich toward God. Not rich, rich in stuff or rich in space <laughs> or rich in experiences. Secondly, we need to guard our hearts against trying to use Jesus instead of love Jesus. We need to guard our hearts from trying to use Jesus instead of love Jesus. Jesus has a lot of power, and we know that, and we try to leverage that power often to help us achieve lesser goals. We try to network Jesus. Hey, Jesus, I've got this great plan for my life. Why don't you bless it? I've got this vision for how I can finally be happy. What do you think? I'll be really important or significant, right? So why don't you just give me this this stuff or this experience or this platform or this open door. Just, 
um, we need to be really careful. Because here's the thing, y'all. It comes down to whether we're motivated by fear or by faith. Last, last fall, I taught through the Lord's Prayer, uh, and it was, it was a wonderful uh, experience for me. I love teaching through it. But the Lord's Prayer is full of commands that we bring to God, full of imperatives, right? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We're commanding God to hallow his own name. Right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're commanding God that his will be done on earth just like it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. We're commanding God to give us our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. Right? We're commanding God to forgive us our trespasses. We are showing up with a tremendous amount of urgency and a tremendous amount of expectation. We're actually commanding God. And what we taught as we went through that was that that is an expression of bold, expectant, humble faith. Well, why in some situations is it okay for us to command God? In other situations, we get rebuffed for doing so because it's in the hard attitude in which we approach. In the Lord's Prayer, we are called to believe God's promises so fully that we take hold of them. And we say to God, you promised to do this, now do it. And God is honored by that faith. When God has promised to do something, we come to him and we say, we trust your word because we trust your character. That's really, really different than being motivated by fear. Fear says, I may not get what I want if I don't get this thing from God. And so I'm going to come and I'm going to cajole, I'm going to manipulate, I'm going to command, I'm going to try to use God in order to get what I want. God doesn't honor those kinds of prayers. So my grandson, um, his mother taught him uh, sign language at an early age, right? And so, like, he was tiny, and he's doing this thing, right, which means I'm hungry, right? He has no words, but so that, that means he's hungry, and he's about a year and a half now, and that's developed, right? He's learned bye-bye. So now he'll make sentences. That means I want to go outside, <laughs> right? He's, he's, he's developing his own internal language, even though he doesn't have words yet, he, he's learning to do this. You know, when he looks at me and he goes like this, it's not a question. It's a command, right? When he looks at me and goes like this, it's not the interrogative voice of a question, it is the imperative voice of a command. <laughs> Feed me, right? And you know what I do when my grandson looks at me and does this? I'm like, dude, what do you want to eat? right? Show me, right? You want this? No? You want this? You want this? You want... Because I love giving him what he's demanding. You know why? Because it's based on a simple premise. I've committed myself to care for him. I love him. I will guard him. I will provide for him. I will love him. And when he shows up and he goes like this, it's because he trusts that I will do what I've said I will do. He trusts that my character matches my words, that I have fed him in the past and he can come to me with that urgency of expectation because he knows I will feed him in the present. He honors me when he comes to me with that urgency. And it's my great joy to honor that urgency by giving him what he wants. Now that's very, very different than when a telemarketer shows up with urgency. A telemarketer shows up, hey, Steve, how you doing? I don't know you. Step back, man. You don't have that space. 
you don't get that influence. One approaches me in love. One approaches me in greed. God honors our requests when we come in love. Our Father loves it when we take Him at His word. And we come with the urgency of faith. And He will rebuff us. He will cool our heels when we come to Him in the urgency of greed. Because He will not be a means to an end. He will not honor that. That wouldn't be loving because it would be essentially Him saying, I'm not what you truly desire. That thing, that really is. He's not going to lie to us like that. In fact, that's actually a form of judgment. In the Bible, when it talks about God giving people over, what it means is He gives them what they're asking for without giving Him Himself. And that's a judgment because they end up becoming drunk on the thing that He gives and so inebriated in it that they never wake up to their genuine need for His grace and His love. God gives us what we need. And He's honored when we come in the urgency of faith. We need to guard our hearts. That we're not trying to manipulate God. That we're not harboring subtle resentments against God because He didn't answer our prayers the way we wanted Him to answer those prayers. Right? It means that we need to, 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 to remind ourselves that we are loved even when we don't get what we want that He is for us even when it's not playing out the way we wanted our story to be told, and renewing our faith that He is Himself the greatest gift, even if the lesser gift doesn't come in the package we hoped it would arrive in. We need to guard our hearts that we're not using Jesus, we're loving Jesus. And finally, we need to be guarding our hearts that we're, uh, that we're, we're living with the end in view right, that we're not living in the Google street level view, but we're pulling out to the Google satellite view. You know what I mean? Like a Google street level view, when you're looking at that, man, you see the street right in front of you, you see the house to your right, you see the tree to your left, and you turn around, you see the weird car following you, but that's all you see, right? And so you make all of your decisions based on what's my next step? What, what is urgent right now? What do I think is important with this really, really limited understanding, uh, right? You don't see up ahead that there's an accident, And that your being diverted right now actually saves you a tremendous amount of heartache farther down the road. If you pull out to the Google satellite view, it shows you not only where you are, but where you're going to go. Right? And you have to, in some ways, trust it, that it knows the path better than you do yourself. That that it actually has data you don't have, information you, you can't understand, and that if it reroutes you, it's because it actually is doing so for your good. We need to pull back and recognize that the life we're living right now, y'all, it's the preface to the novel. It's not the novel itself. This is not all there is, and it's not the best part of what there is. Your life right now is important, and it's full, and it's vibrant, and it's good. It's a gift from God, but it is not all there is. Your 70, 80, 90 years of life is nothing compared to the life that you were intended to live or the life that you will live. It is the precursor to the true story. It is the preface to the novel. And we make a mistake if we think that we need to get all of our joy, all of our satisfaction, all of our significance, all of our meaning in this life, in this time. We don't live for the kingdom that is. We live for the kingdom that's to come. And the wise steward doesn't invest in a failing market. A wise steward invests in what will last. 
what is truly meaningful. We don't live for temporary pleasure. We do not live for temporary fame. We do not live for, for, for temporary security. Because we don't have a temporary Savior. He rose from the dead. Which means there's a whole new life ahead of us. Because our resurrected Savior is resurrecting us. Psalm 103, verses 15 through 19 says this. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. The psalmist says, we're like those flowers that come up in, in the Middle East in the dew of the morning when, when the, those flowers bloom in the grass, in the cool and in the dew, and then the hot scorching heat, the desert, the afternoon wind comes in and they just shrivel up and they disappear. From God's perspective, that's the human life. There have been billions of humans that have lived on the face of this planet ahead of you. All of them have been consumed with establishing their own kingdoms, building their own glory, experiencing their own pleasures. And guess where every single one of them are? They're like the flower of the field that has passed away. How foolish we would be to think that that temporary bloom is true glory, true significance. There is a glory to it, and there's a beauty in the moment. But our greatest hope isn't in the fact that our flower gets to bloom. Our greatest hope is in the fact that our God is a covenant God. His steadfast love endures from eternity to eternity. I'm secure not because I have money, but because of Christ in me, the hope of glory. I, I, I am important and significant, not because people know me or respect me, but because of Christ in me, the hope of glory. I can find rest, genuine, true rest, not because I've achieved some goal or attained some status or gained enough money or moved into the right house. I can rest right now because I can rest in what he's done for me, not in what I do for him. His everlasting love is from eternity to eternity. And I can rest in the face of my own mortality and my fear because it's not my control that makes me secure. It's his love and his covenant steadfast love stretches from eternity to eternity. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the true treasure. All right, you guys, I'm gonna close this in a word of prayer. We'll have some time to reflect and then we will... Uh, share communion together. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that you are a God of steadfast love. That your love is based in your choice to love us, not in our ability to attract your love. You don't love us because we're lovable. You love us because you choose to. And in choosing to, you change us, you free us, you transform us. That we can be what we are created to be so that we can experience life as we were 
created to experience it. And Lord, we, we confess, I confess to you this morning that the cycle that I see in this parable is the cycle of my heart. I am so tempted. And when I'm not careful, when I'm not paying attention, man, I fall into this cycle. I just start thinking, if I could just get this thing, if I could just have this experience, if I could just get, th- man, I just, Lord, I confess it. I am, I am, I am in my own power addicted to the false pleasures that come from the false treasures. This cycle of cathartic release and, and, and temporary pleasure. Man, I thank you that you love me in spite of that, that you love me so much that you invite me to be freed from it. May we be a community, Lord, that, that digs deep into your love that reminds each other of our true treasure, that experiences that true treasure together. That we might experience genuine freedom together. We thank you. We thank you for Jesus. Guys, take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.